this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. My next guest, Eric Levy, is a pioneer in the business of lockers. I don't know if you've been into a Whole Foods recently and noticed the Amazon lockers. Well, apparently this is a thing called BOPUS, buy online, pick up in store. I didn't know it existed, frankly, but my next guest, Eric Levy, is this sort of pioneer in this space. He almost invented the category, uh, started off with laundry, and eventually moved to installing these lockers in apartment buildings where apartment dwellers needed a place to drop off the stuff that they purchased online or have delivery companies drop the stuff off. In any event, he built this company up a million in sales in its first year. Four years later, was doing $37 million in annual sales. I want you to pay special attention to how he financed his growth because I think we're always tempted to take on investors, right? Venture capital, if you're big enough, growing enough, fast enough, certainly Eric was, uh, private equity, et cetera. Yet Eric used his cash flow model, the way he charged for his locker system in order to avoid the dilution associated with taking on that institutional money. Here to tell you how he did it, is Eric Levy. Eric Levy, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's cool. So tell me about this company, Luxor One. What did you guys do? So Luxor One is a, uh, we're the, the premier leader in electronic parcel lockers. So what we do is we put lockers into apartment buildings, office buildings, retail stores um, for packages. So. Uh, you can imagine an apartment building, they receive hundreds of packages a day. UPS, FedEx, Amazon, they put the packages in the locker. You get a text message that says you have a package to pick up. You go down, scan the locker, and pick up your package. So cool. You know, I've, see, I've seen these. Now, I live in Toronto where we're a bit behind the U.S., certainly behind Silicon Valley. Uh, but I've seen, like, Amazon lockers at, like, Whole Foods. And so I could go in. I guess if I got something on Amazon, I, I could pick it up at Whole Foods. Is that is that? Is that the kind of stuff that you guys did? Yeah, exactly. So we're very similar to the Amazon lockers. Um, we're not okay. specific to Amazon, but, you know, so we're more working as a, a third-party provider that anybody at UPS or an Amazon or FedEx can deliver to. And, and we're also in Toronto. We've started to get quite a bit of expansion in Canada as well. I just got to get my head on my ass and start traveling more to see some of these places. Okay, <laughs> have to so- live in an apartment building or, or some retailers are starting to roll them out too in Canada. Okay, great. So I think I get the, I get the, I get what you were offering. What was the business model? Like who paid what for the service? Yeah. So, um, you know, the business model was, uh, it was a challenge for us to actually figure out what that business model would be. And maybe it's a little helpful for me to give you a little bit more of background and sort of my entrepreneurial journey because Luxor One is actually really kind of the third company that I started, but they're all an evolution 
Hmm. And so in 2005, I started a company called Laundry Locker. Um, and Laundry Locker was, we put lockers in apartment buildings for dry cleaning and wash and fold. So this was before everybody was ordering everything online. It started in 2005. Um, but personally, I could never get my dry cleaning done. And so I had this concept, if I put my laundry in a locker and someone were to come pick it up and service it, put it back in there, it would make my life amazing. Uh, and so I started a business called Laundry Locker, which grew to become the largest dry cleaner in San Francisco. And then we, we actually started to the software, my background's in software development. So the software that I built for Laundry Locker, we started to sell that to other companies all across the globe. In fact, we've got, I think, two partners up in, in Toronto, even in your neighborhood. So anytime that you see lockers in an apartment building being used for dry cleaning, there's probably a 95% chance that they're running our software. We work with some of the largest dry cleaners in the world. And the software, again, I'm thinking it's a very low-tech business, but of course it's not. The software you know, is, is what is sending a text message to the customer that, hey, you, your laundry's back in your locker and yeah, it's a lot- scheduling it all and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, so if you think about that process, right, first through a mobile app, you need to place an order and say, I dropped my laundry off at this location. In fact, you might even need credentials to get into that location. So Mm -hmm. our software is managing all that. Then we're seeing the hundreds of orders a day um, showing up and optimizing the route for the driver. The driver's out there with a handheld device scanning in every uh, package, every, every piece of laundry. It's then coming back to a dry cleaning facility where it's either being outsourced or being done in house where you're checking in every piece. We take a picture of every label of every item. You actually get an email with it. You can mark it up and say, I have a stain here. It's a ketchup stain. I want this to be serviced. So the software behind it is very sophisticated. It's kind of an ERP system for running a a dry cleaner. And so uh, we had quite a few people that went out and tried to do the same thing and and launch their own business and maybe build their own software, use some of the off the shelf software. I'd say 99% of them converted over to our platform because it was specifically built for the challenges of dry cleaning delivery through lockers. All right. How did you get the money to start Laundry Locker? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so to start Laundry Locker, which was my first endeavor, I had saved up, you know, a little bit of money, maybe 20, 30 grand. And, uh, you know, went out and bought some lockers and put all that money kind of into some CapEx and then went and did it. Uh, I realized pretty quickly that I was running out of money and um, hit up some friends and family and was able to borrow uh, like 40 grand or so um, to the point where we got it off of the ground and we're starting to generate some revenue and people are using the service. And then I was lucky enough to find a couple of uh, angel investors. One was the laundromat that I was running my laundry at. The other was a a property owner who had some property uh, that we had our lockers in. And I think we raised around 250 grand back then. And that was enough to really get the company going. Um, And then we did a, we did two more rounds. So in total, we raised around $2 million uh, for that company. It was all angel and friends and family um, that we were able to raise our money for. And, you know, a lot of that was, um, we actually spent a significant chunk of it franchising, going down that path, realized that wasn't the right path, but had this really valuable software and the way to solve the problem for uh, the dry cleaners and the other folks that were calling us was more to license them the software than it was a franchise model. Um, but what that was the last money we raised was almost was 12 years ago or so with uh, that final round at, at Laundry Locker to franchise. And so kind of friends and family, you did some debt with, with them. Um, 
you know, like at reasonable terms kind of thing, like your in-house terms, friendly terms, I'm guessing? Well, those early loans, uh, when we did our first round, we were able to convert that to equity. So okay. we actually never did any significant debt. We had a small line of credit with the bank, but it was really difficult to get any lines of credit, uh, <laughs> significant ones. Although I shouldn't say that when we built our dry cleaning plant, we were able to get a fairly significant SBA loan um, for Got the it. build out of that. Got it. Okay. So you've got a couple of angels involved, um, some investors, and, and then you mentioned there were sort of three businesses in one here. So Laundry Locker, there's another pivot. What was the second sort of iteration? Yeah. So the second one was when we went through that franchising process and we actually were about to close a round of private equity. Um, concurrently, we realized, wait, you know, the real business here is just to license this software. And so that is a, it's really under the same business, but it's a brand called Dropbocker. And so Dropbocker is a software platform for people that want to run a locker-based dry cleaning business. And so that business uh, grew pretty well as a, a software-based business, really, um, you know, worked out well. We were able to enable, I think we have about 75 partners in like 15 different countries hmm. who have built their entire business around this, this platform. Um, you know, you have one of the largest dry cleaners in the world is running it. Um, Thai dry cleaners uh, for their delivery services running it. So it's become a, uh, like I said, we kind of went into some of the details, but if you want to do delivery this way and lockers, you know, lockers are a, are a really powerful yet simple way to provide an asynchronous transaction. Right. And so if you look at dry cleaning, Hey, I want to drop my dry cleaning off on my convenience. And the dry cleaner wants to pick it up at their convenience. And so a locker is a nice, secure way to create that transaction. And so, um, you know, that's sort of the basis of, of what the business I've, I've, I've built are on. But, but going back, kind of circling back on that is if you want to do locker-based delivery, you have to have some kind of software platform to manage that. And that's what Dropwalker was. Or is. We, still, we still sell that company and I'm still, or sell that software and I'm still involved in that company. Okay. So then take us into Luxor One and what the next iteration was. Yeah. So you can imagine now we have, you know, in the U.S. about 50 different companies that are out there. Most of these people are entrepreneurs, right? They're entrepreneurs who said, I love what Laundry Locker is doing in San Francisco. I want to bring it to D.C. So the guy in D.C. is sitting there knocking on doors saying, hey, let's put some lockers in your building for dry cleaning. This is a great amenity to be able to offer. And the, the property manager going, yeah, that's cool. We'll let you put those in. But can you help us with this pile of packages we have here? Literally, we've got 100 packages sitting in our leasing office. They're taking up all of our space, all of our time. We need a better way to solve this. Is there something we can do with these dry cleaning lockers? And so I'm getting calls from all of our, our licensees. I'm getting calls um, in San Francisco from Laundry Locker that we're still operating. And realizing that this package uh, growth is really just, you know, continuing to grow and becoming a really big problem for these properties. So I go, okay, well, yes, we can build lockers to solve this. I don't know what the business model is going to be, but, um, you know, I think we, we, we can have a technology solution for this. So I went out and uh, was able to develop a electronic package locker system and uh, placed it in some buildings and it worked great. I mean, we were able to work with the carriers. We kind of figured out how to wheel and deal with them to get them delivering to the lockers. Um, but the way I look at it, there's really, we call it a three-legged stool, but there's really three constituents that drive the success of a locker system. You have the person that lives in the apartment, the recipient who's getting the package. 
you have the property manager who's in essence the gatekeeper everything's got to come through their property and they're the ones who had the big problem and then you have the carriers the ups the fedex the amazon where um you know that last mile delivery makes up 40 percent of their cost and so uh if you look at those three different constituents who's going to pay for it and uh so if you start with the the recipient um it's very hard to get people to pay for delivery, right? I mean, we all, I'd rather pay $100 a year for Amazon Prime and not pay for shipping and not get nickel and dime on it, um, pay, you know, versus like going to some other website and having paid $10 for shipping. And Amazon really, you know, hit their growth curve when they offer free shipping. And so mm -hmm. it's been proven over and over and over again. And we've even had competitors who've come out and tried to launch competing platforms that charge the resident. And yes, you might be able to get, you know, a small 5% share who are willing to do that. But the bulk of of people are not willing to pay for shipping. So that was kind of out. Um, the next was the property. And so we went and talked to the properties and at least the ones that we had talked to initially said, you know, yeah, this is a great idea, but this isn't our problem. Like we're getting all these packages. We should just shut this off and not even have to deal with these packages anymore. We're just doing this as a service to our tenants. We're not paying $30,000 for a locker system. You crazy? Um, and so then it was like, well, the carriers, we're saving them a ton of money. We can give them pretty much a guaranteed first time delivery. We can reduce their delivery time. This should be a huge win for them. They should be willing to pay for this. And so I spent about the first year, almost two years, working with UPS, FedEx, Amazon, US Postal Service to try to convince them that this was a great business. And I think they understood. We were able to convince them of that. Um, but to get them to actually shell up that money and, and to really kind of, um, you know, pay a per transaction fee or whatever it is has been and still remains uh, unsurmountable. But what happened concurrently was, um, you know, our space is really, there's three players who own 99% market share of lockers and apartment buildings for package delivery. And so our other two competitors came out actually before us and they both come from the property management space. And so they were able to actually go out and convince property managers that they could that they should be paying for these lockers, that it's a great ROI. And in mm. fact, it is. It's like a six to nine month ROI if you look at the dedicated staff that they're putting into managing these packages. So our competitors actually knew the customer better than we do, and they were able to convince them to pay for lockers. We had a lot more experience, obviously, in lockers, locker technology, the software, et cetera. So we had a much better product. We had a product built and ready to go, uh, but couldn't find the market. They found the market for us, and we went in and I'm the dominant player in that space. So then you, you essentially repriced the offering based on what the competitors were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we shifted our focus saying, you know what, well, we thought we couldn't charge properties. We can charge properties. What made, it's a really what, good ROI for them. Okay. What made you guys so much better uh, in a practical way? Like what was the, what was the value proposition that made you guys so much better than the, the, the competitors that came out of property development? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, you know, we still break it down into a couple uh, in three different areas of, of where we see ourselves differentiating from them. Um, from a technology perspective, you know, that's my background. That's, that's our bread and butter. Uh, we run iOS-based uh, solutions so that, you know, just the touch and the feel, the quality of it, when you use our, our product, you can, you can sense the quality and tell that it's a much, a much better performing solution um, you know, the camera that we've got in there, the touch screen in there. So from a technology perspective, uh, we continue to sort of lead in that area. From a support perspective, 
we are, you know, we've got a hundred support, hundred people on our support team and staff 24 seven They're in house. They're here in Sacramento. We have cameras on every single one of our um, products that are out there. So every locker system that's out there has a camera feed. We can pull that up. We can see what happened um, from a support side to be able mm-hmm. to, uh, to help those folks. And so those are really kind of the, the key differentiators and the way that we go and we sell our product. Got it. So give us a sense of the trajectory. So you're, you're, you've discovered this business model that the properties yeah. are going to, you're going to pay. Um, first of all, how did you finance that year or two where you're trying to convince the FedExes and the UPSs to, to, you know, to pay, like, how are you kind of making, you know, making ends meet at that time? Yeah. So Laundry Locker was, um, a, you know, mildly successful business, um, not wildly successful, but did okay. It was, it was profitable. Drop Locker, which was a software company was, was, pretty profitable and was really um, a, a good business. And uh, the cash that was coming out of drop blockers, in essence, what we use to fund our initial R&D and get the business. Uh, Why not double down on drop blocker? Why not? Like, what was it that about the, the putting lockers in buildings that was so attractive to you? Why not just sort of stake in the second pivot and and yeah. look that? No, no, I go back to that one a lot because that was a fantastic business. It was like four people. I could live wherever I kind of built that as sort of my ideal business. I mean, it was going to be a nice, strong cash flow company. I was single at the time. I figured I could travel around the world, work from my laptop. Uh, life would be great. But, you know, I am, um, I love to solve problems. I, I, I get very, I'm very focused on efficiency and, um, you know, coming up with creative solutions. And so when I saw this market sitting there and really starting to take off, and knowing that I really had the right to win in that space, I, mean, I pretty much, we've got patents on it, and I pretty much invented locker-based delivery, right? And so um, I always had a greater vision of really wanting to, for lockers to proliferate as a, as a way of you know, facilitating streamlined uh, transactions. And so with, with that in mind, you know, when I saw this Luxor One opportunity, I couldn't pass it up to some extent. And so even though Dropbox was kind of the perfect business, I knew that there was a, I could just foresee sort of the opportunity for this. And if we could change the way that packages are delivered, um, that's a game changer, right? And so for me, it was just kind of the excitement and the knowing that I had to go after that market and give it a try. So again, ballpark, I don't, I don't know if you could talk to this directly, but ballpark, what were the, the drop locker financials, like kind of top line revenue? You mentioned four employees. Can you talk about kind of, generally margins or revenue, any, any sort of, to give us a sense of how big the bread box was at drop locker. I mean, it was doing, I think at the heyday, probably around $3 million a year. And, um, we were probably around a 20 to 30% EBIT. Okay. So you've got this, what you think is a much bigger opportunity in these, in these lockers in buildings, where does it go from there? Like what, what kind of roughly what year are you in when you, when the, when the sea change happens and the buildings start to say, okay, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll underwrite the cost of the locker. So kind of what year are you in at that time? Yeah. So 2015 is when we started going to market, going to trade shows, starting to sell um, our lockers. And that was our first year in business. And we did, you know, first year we did over a million dollars in business. So it was wow. Great first year. And literally it was about a $250,000 investment from Laundry Locker, which we had paid back within about nine months, I think. We paid back that loan to Laundry Locker and we were freestanding cash flow positive, uh, profitable business. 
Wow. That's amazing. So, um, the, so the, so the building pays for the locker installation. Is that right? Yeah. So the way our, our model works is they own the lockers and I mean, we're a little more flexible now, but you can imagine back then when, you know, we didn't have access to a lot of cash. Um, you know, we'll sell them a system for $20,000. They'll pay $10,000 up front, another $10,000 when the lockers are installed. And then there's a monthly service fee for us to maintain and support and provide all that customer service to their residents. I mean, we pretty much take the problem off their hand. So, you know, now when deliveries happen, even if it didn't go into our locker, we can typically figure it out and go, okay, well, you know what? You, USPS probably put that in your mailbox. Go check your mailbox. So now anytime a resident has a problem with a package, they call into our support center and we manage and help that. So we take that whole load off of the property and there's a monthly service fee. for that. Got it. And the value proposition to the property owner is, look, you're, you're, you're staffing this with like a person yeah. and you don't need to have that person necessarily do that anymore. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's a pretty quick ROI. Yeah. So what was the sales model? You went to trade shows. Um, so property managers have trade shows. Who knew? I, I had no idea that they, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. There's a, there's a couple of really big, there's very big shows and then there's regional local shows as well. Uh, so the, you know, the big shows are very well attended. The, the trade shows in this industry are really powerful. They're great ways to get to know people. I mean, we were the new kids on the block a little bit. Like I said, our competitors knew everybody in the space. So you got to figure out, you know, the buying decision, sometimes it's happening at property level. Sometimes it's happening at a, a JP Morgan level, right? The asset manager mm-hmm. on sort of all, a whole portfolio uh, and you have REITs and such like that. We had, you know, so it was a lot of sort of making connections in the industry. There was some, uh, we partnered with, uh, with one company um, to build a specific product for them. It's called Amley is the name of the company. They're a large REIT, very well respected in the industry. And uh, we actually built a, a product for them called Luxor Room. They wanted to, instead of putting lockers in, they wanted to be able to convert a room to handle packages, but use our same technology and automation around that. Um, so, you know, partnering with them really helped. They were able to spread the word about our technology, you know, winning some key deals with some key REITs. And a lot of, um, there's a lot of consolidation within the industry. So, you know, one REIT might own 100 properties. And when you hmm. win, you know, uh, when you do a really good job with them in one property, they're going to choose you for all their other properties. And when they do choose you, the cash moves, as you describe, X amount up, like a percentage up front, a yep. percentage on delivery, and then an ongoing fee. So you're, you're managing your cash flow so that you're, you're getting that influx of cash basically upon signing. Yeah, I mean, that, that deposit, in essence, allows you to buy inventory. Um, and you know, for us, our initial production was out of China. We we're buying, you know, product out of China, bringing it into the U S you know, you're trying to float your cash cause you're starting, you know, this company's becoming millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It starts getting pretty scary. You know, you've got $5 million of inventory you're trying to come up with, you know, so this stuff's moving around. You know, you've got to run tight receivables and make sure you're getting paid on that, that follow up. You, you've got to be in essence selling enough, so that the cash is coming in from those sales to fund, you know, your future operations. Um, but fortunately, yeah, I mean, we were able to, um, for the most part, actually, and it kind of gets into the, you know, what we're going to talk about from the transaction side. Yeah. But until we found uh, somebody that wasn't willing to work in that model on a large scale, we, we won uh, a massive retail portfolio and rolled our lockers out to a retail store and they wouldn't pay us the 50% up front. And so that became net 30. 
And that changed the whole ballgame for us. And so when that happened is when we really started to deplete our cash and realized we were heading into a scenario where we couldn't cash flow this thing anymore. And, uh, and if we were to get another retail client, we have pilots going with like all the top retailers in the, in the States. Uh, if we were to get another retail client, there's no way we could continue with this path. And so that's when we went out to try to seek funding. Okay. So the, the retail, to go back to my silly example earlier, the retail is when like a company like a Whole Foods says, we want to put these lockers in our retail store. Sort of. Whole Foods and Amazon are not putting the lockers in there for Whole Foods. Uh, it's when a Walmart says. So the big shift in retail and, and a massive amount of retailers growth these days, if you look at Target, Target will say that over 50% of what people purchased online, they picked up in the store. So it's called wow. Bopis, buy online pickup in store. And if you, uh, if you look at that number um, and you start peeling back the layers in that experience, I don't know if you've ever done Bopis, uh, but when you go into, you buy the stuff online, you go, great, I'm going to go pick it up at my at Walmart. And you go into Walmart and you stand and they say, oh, pickups are over here. And it's the customer service line, right? So hopefully there's, if there's somebody there, they're probably helping other customers. Otherwise, like you have to ring a bell. Somebody comes over and say, oh, let me go get the package out of the back. They get the package out of the back and they give it to you. The average wait time is 10 minutes. Oh, 10 minutes. I ordered something online. I had to go park. I come into a store and I'm waiting 10 minutes at the customer service line when I see the product sitting right there and I can just go buy it, go through self-checkout and leave. Yeah. So that experience generally scores in the 60 to 70% customer satisfaction rating. When we put our lockers in, it's over 95% customer satisfaction because that's exactly how you expect it to work. I ordered online. Yeah, I can get in two hours at the at the local Lowe's or you know Home Depot or Best Buy or whatever it is, and you go down there and you scan your your QR code at the locker and you pick it up in two seconds and you're on your way. And so the the customer satisfaction scores went through the roof. We did a pilot with a, a retailer; it was fantastic, and we've got almost a chain wide rollout now um, with, with them. In fact, Sorry, with with who's that? With the uh, it's a major home improvement retailer. Got it. We don't need to know the names, but. You can kind of guess <laughs> one of the biggies, I guess. Um, got it. So again, from a consumer perspective, from my own edification, why don't you just have them ship it to you? Why, why would you want to pick it up in store? Why wouldn't you just say, just ship it to my home? Yeah. So if you look at sort of the drivers behind Bopis, right? Um, yeah. There is a lot more uh, speed of delivery, right? So Amazon's now pushing towards this one day delivery, but that's never the way it used to be, right? So if I need mm-hmm. a... If I need screws, I need screws today. I don't need them three days from now. I'm working on a project. I want to just be able to go over to Home Depot and grab my screws, right? So um, a lot of it is the speed. It's the, the savings. So for a retailer and for a consumer, kind of take Amazon out of the play. But typically, if I go buy something from Best Buy, um, a lot of times they'll charge me for shipping. But if I go pick it up in a store, they won't charge me for shipping. Or, you know, you can get it shipped for free, but it's going to be there in three days or you can come to the store and you can pick it up tomorrow. So um, the Bopus so. value proposition is going to be faster. It's going to be in some cases cheaper. Um, got it. And because the, the other big issue is, so the thing that is not talked about in e-commerce a lot is that um, I think the number is like 70% of people don't have a secure way to receive a package. Right. right? And so shipping to people's homes is not very secure. 
offices are not really wanting to accept packages anymore. So that's why you've seen Amazon lockers. Amazon lockers is brilliant, right? I mean, they've opened up uh, a market to so many people there who can't receive packages. And so a lot of it is just, I can't even receive packages, but I still want to do e-commerce and order stuff online. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the other major reasons. How did you guys think about Amazon in, in the business? Cause it sounds like in one case, they're a collaborator, right? A uh, big shipper to the apartment buildings you guys serve. And then in other cases, they almost sound like a competitor. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon is what created the need for this. Uh, that being said, you know, Amazon was never really a competitor. They were always a, uh, a partner of ours. You know, we work with them like we do UPS and FedEx and they deliver, you know, Amazon's launched their own delivery fleet. So they deliver to our lockers and they still do. Uh, Amazon actually did launch a competing product to ours hmm. called Amazon Hub where they've started to install lockers into apartment buildings. And absolutely that was uh, and is a competitor of ours and a powerful competitor. Um, but you know, Amazon's not getting in the locker business to improve the workflow for an apartment building or to make UPS and FedEx's life better. Right? So if you look at the motivations behind why Amazon's putting lockers into apartment buildings, it's to drive people to buy more Amazon packages and be able to, give them a guaranteed great experience with Amazon. And to some extent, even to control that experience for a UPS or a FedEx customer or Walmart or Nordstrom's customer. Right. And so, um, you know, we've been able to counteract that and still remain very successful in the, uh, in the marketplace. Do you ever get pressure from major retailers saying, you know, our, you know, we'll, you know, we'll install lockers all over our stores but you got to stop doing business with Amazon. Um, I want to say we do business with Amazon, right? I mean, for us to say, no, Amazon can't put packages in our lockers would be quite a, uh, that would be more, you know, we're selling our lockers to a property, right? So the property is owning the lockers. We're really just providing a service on right. it. It's like you bought a refrigerator. Who knows what goes in that refrigerator? That being yeah. said, when you work with major retailers, you cannot run on AWS anymore. We have to move our entire, um, platform off of AWS. So AWS being Walmart. Amazon web services for folks who yeah. don't know that. Yeah, I mean, Walmart's yeah. got, there's articles about if you work with Walmart, you can't run on AWS and yeah. all the other retailers feel the exact same way. Got it. Okay. So I, I, I love, I, I love this, this example. I want to dig in here around. So you're in the early days working with the commercial, the, the buildings um, and they would pay 50% upfront, which gave you the cash flow, a little juggling to get the thing done. The retailers come in and say, that's not how we work. We're net 30. Um, you're like, oh my God, we need 5,000 lockers and I don't have the money to <laughs> finance right. that up front, which caused you to go looking for money. Is that, yep. is that right? right? That's exactly right, yeah. So we, so went, what, to banks what said, I went to banks and said, look, we got these contracts with retailers. Can you give us $5 million? And they go, yeah, go pound sand. Like, we're not really going to do this. Um, What's your revenue at this point, Arik? Like, give me a sense of how much revenue you have at this point. What's your ballpark? Uh, we're probably about a $20 million business at this point. Okay, got it. And that's pretty fast. I and mean, that's in like three years, right? So, I mean, we're just on this crazy tail. Yeah. Uh, and then we start landing, you know, some of the biggest retailers in the world. So, um, so yeah, we're having board calls going, what are we going to do? Do we go try to raise some money from our investors again? Do we go out and try to get, you know, VC money? 
And so that was sort of our plan was, hey, let's go out and get some VC money. You can see our track record. It's going. There's some massive opportunity here. This should be a, a pretty highly fundable business. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd, I'd done the VC thing probably two or three times through the years to try to get VC money and was never able to get it. And it is like the most miserable process ever. <laughs> and so I was not looking forward to that at all. What makes and, it miserable, by the way? Uh, a couple things. One is it's very hard to run a good structured process where you have multiple VCs involved and sort of bidding on it. Um, and if you don't, if you're not like super dialed into the world, you're starting sort of at the bottom with an associate who you're having calls with, who's then saying, Oh, let me pitch it to a partner. Then maybe you get to go talk to the partner. Then the partner brings it to the partner's meeting and you're making trips to Palo Alto every day. I mean, it's literally, a full-time job. And even if you do it as a full-time job, it's hard to do it well. And so um, it's just, it, and it's a lot of rejection. I mean, you're going in there and you, you make it so far and then they're like, no. And so you go three, four meetings and they're like, no, no, no. So it's just a lot of no's and a lot of work. And uh, at the end of the day, you now have some venture capitalist who owns a significant amount of your business and, and you're working for them, right? And they're the ones who have sort of the upside. They've got a lot of downside risk protection. And, you know, you hope that you can grow this into a hundred million billion dollar business so that you can see a, you know, a good payday out of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sort of stepping back, what happened actually during that process and the timing was really good. And, uh, you know, I received an email from a customer. And so when, so when someone's a customer and they're like, hey, lockers are in my apartment building, I want to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. I usually have to at least respond to it and not be a total jerk, right? And so this one was an investment banker. And we get calls and emails all the time from, um, from you know, firms, private equity firms and VCs and bankers, et cetera. We get those, you know, probably two or three a week. And so I was like, okay, well, we've got a lot of inbound leads and interest. But this one was particularly interesting. It was a, a gentleman that lived in an apartment building with us, worked for PwC, uh, and was one of their uh, worked on their investment banking team and reached out to me and says, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about your, your financing needs. And so I returned his call and said, okay, well tell me about this. I really didn't know anything about investment bank. I'm like, you know, educate me on investment bankers and how this works. Cause I'm not looking forward to this VC raise. Can you guys help me with going out raising some VC money? And they pretty much go, yeah, it's like nothing down. And we just take a percentage of what we raise. I go, well, that sounds too good to be true. True. And, you know, you're going to like line up these meetings and put together the proposal deck and all that stuff. And they're like, yeah, I was like, all right, <laughs> let's, let's do this. So it was, it was good timing. We partnered up with uh, the bankers over PwC and um, really with the intention of actually uh, raising money. So it was to go out and, you know, whether it be VCs or strategic investors, we listed, you know, the UPSs and the FedExs and all these other strategic investors that we thought could be interested in this. And then how, how much, are, are, how much of the business were you willing to give up on a percentage basis? And, and how much did you want to raise? Like, what was the, the kind of calculus in your, is this a big chunk of the business? Is it like a little sliver? I mean, I think we we're looking to raise like $10 million and assuming that someone get about 25, you know, hoping they get about 25% equity. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, most of these rounds are in that 25 to 30% round range. Yeah. yeah. That was our expectations. Got it. Okay. So that's kind of what the, the goal is. Um, and how did PN, uh, PwC feel about that expectation? Do they say, yeah, it's reasonable or like you're. 
I'm trying to remember whether they set that expectation with us or if we kind of told them that that's what we were expecting. Uh, we were pretty aligned on that. There was any, okay. yeah, I mean, there was good alignment on that. Okay. And again, at this point, you're kind of roughly 20 million top line growing like a weed. Uh, yeah. Yep. Got it. So we're on a Got nice it. solid trajectory. And I mean, you know, hitting our numbers every month, we've got large clients, large REITs, great financials. I mean, the company was buttoned up and, and running really well. That's awesome. And, and so, okay, let's go forward for at this point. So, so they, they go to market looking to raise money. What was, what was the. Yeah. So we engaged with the bankers. Um, you know, they spent a solid three, four months helping us really with our books, uh, getting our books in order and getting the P and L and balance sheet really dialed up and getting our forecasts super solid. Um, so especially, you know, PWC, they're, they're auditors, right? So they're bringing in their auditors and helping us really uh, dial in our books. And that process alone was worth, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and, and we would have necessarily even had to pay for it. Um, and then, um, and we're putting together a pitch deck and then, mm-hmm. you know, we're putting together a list of, uh, of targets to go after. And so they started down the strategic path first because typically they'll take, well, it's a longer process than the VCs are. So we started launching our, our, you know, pitch deck over to, or they started launching our pitch deck to strategics and have the first call and talk to them and get them excited about the business. They're doing the same thing a couple of weeks later with venture capitalists. I mean, and then, and then it's just meetings and I mean, it would be incredible. I would go down to, to Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, and I'd have three meetings back to back scheduled in the exact same day, all with partners. And so I was like, this is incredible. I mean, it would have taken me six months to try to line up these meetings and had all these, you know, and, and for me, I'm up in Sacramento, so I'm a solid two, three hours to get down to Palo Alto. Um, so it's lining up the VC meetings. We've got strategics coming out. It's kind of coming at all angles and we're just kind of pitching like crazy for a couple of weeks there, which was and a to lot be clear, of at this point, you're still looking to raise money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's all under the, the guise of raising money. And that was sort of mm-hmm. our intention. And, um, then the bankers are like, man, these strategics are really interesting. We've got like five of them that want to make an offer to buy the company. What do you think about that? Hmm. I was like, well, that's interesting. I wasn't, we weren't really ready to sell the company. I mean, we, we kind of want to keep growing with this thing. We're having a lot of fun. We're building a great team here. Market who's the we, market by the way? Are, who's the we? Like, like, who's involved in the decision to buy and sell the company? Like, who in your team did you want to have on side on that decision? You know, when it comes to actually that decision, it's really me and the board. Um, and the board are some of the, it's, it's a three-person board. Um, and the other two are investors in the company. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's really, yeah, I mean, that's the decision makers here. And we're representing the shareholders, which is probably about 20 different shareholders. Um, and then, you know, with my, my CFO, we were also working together on it. She was heavily involved in the process, but as far as making that decision that, yeah, I think we're ready to sell. And that was really came down to how much it was going to be. Right. And, um, you know, if you look at it, it's like, Hey, I could sell my company for X or I could go get venture capital and then have to grow it to three X to hopefully sell it for the same amount of money and put the same amount of money in shareholders pockets. And then the VCs get rich on it. Right. So like, you know, the option of selling, as soon as you go the VC path, you are going to sell your company. 
and you're going to have a lot of pressure on you to sell your company in a relatively short time frame. So it was just, it was either we're going to go VC and sell the company or we're going to sell the company today. And, you know, then it came down to the different offers and, and comparing those. And a lot of it, you know, the Osaboy, who's we, we finally decided to, uh, to sell to, a lot of that was around letting us continue on our path. And, um, you know, yes, they are, uh, they own the company, but to some extent, they're much more like a strategic investor. Uh, Osaboy is a, a $9 billion company. They're made up of 300 separate companies. And a lot of the brands and the companies that they own still operate their own company. You can think of Yale Locks or HID, which is the card readers, or Medica or August Lock. Um, and these companies still own, operate very independently, as do we. I mean, I'm still the CEO of Luxor One. We still have the same team in place. They haven't brought anybody in to run the company. So it's very much like bringing on a strategic investor, um, yet they own the whole, the whole company. Got it. So Asa Abloy, I'm saying it slowly because I had never heard the name. I'm sure I'm just ignorant, but it's a big Swedish company, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah and, they, and they do anything to do with like, I think I was reading on their website, like anything to do with doors, right? Like yeah, door locks and uh, yeah, as you point out, RFID is so crazy. The companies out there, like who knew there was a $9 billion company out there? I'd never heard of them before. Well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, I've heard of their brands. You just haven't heard of them. And that's kind of the way they, I mean, I want to say that's exactly the way they run it. I mean, the Asa brand is a relatively powerful brand. If you're in that industry, if you're in architecture and such, um, but yes, they're not really a consumer brand. So what were the other, who were the other, like, cause I I can see how there's uh, an adjacency with Asa Abloy. You certainly, you guys had something to do with the doorway. Uh, You know, in an essence, you were accessing the doorway, it provided another doorway into these buildings in in a sense. So there was an adjacent sort of value proposition for them. Um, Well, who were the other four strategics and, and what did they see? What was the strategic fit with them? Um, some of them were international companies that wanted to, that are doing lockers internationally and really wanted to uh, accelerate in the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, others were um, companies that felt that lockers were a pretty important piece of their evolution, um, whether it be in like, you know, there's a huge shift now from mail to parcels. Right. Mm-hmm. So it used to be like we check our mailbox for mail. Now we could care less what's in our mailbox. We care about the parcels. Right. right. So there's yeah. this huge shift. So you can see anybody who's sort of witnessing that shift or involved in that shift would be very interested. And we're the largest player in the space. I mean, we we have the most lockers deployed in the United States. Um, we have the best technology and best platform out there. So, you know, um, anybody that wanted to get into that market, we were the right company to acquire. Got it. So, so these strategics were out there. What, what made um, Asa Abloy's offer more attractive? Um, I mean, you get into the details of like the offer, but actually the reality is Asa actually wasn't the highest bidder. Um, we had hmm. higher, higher bidders. Um, but what we liked the most about Asa was that, you know, we were going to be able to keep the team in place and we were going to continue running on our trajectory and keep the company operating as it is. Uh, the other ones, you could just tell, like if they came in, they were going to bring in their team. We were going to get sucked into their company. We were going to become a product there that they were going to offer tightly integrate into, which was interesting, but I don't think it allowed us to sort of continue 
uh, executing on our vision. So was, what was it in, in those conversations and the LOIs uh, that, that led you to believe that the other offers were, the other requires were going to kind of suck you in and, and, and like, what was it? What were the, again, I, I'm trying to think for other entrepreneurs listening who might be looking at an offer right now, like what should they be on the lookout for uh, if they don't want to fall victim to that? Yeah, well, there was a couple of things. I mean, one is go, and, and there's very different types of acquisitions, right? Sometimes people are just looking to get out of the company. Other times uh, they want to keep running with it. And so you have to choose sort of, you know, what you want. One of the best ways is you go and you talk to the companies that they've acquired in the past, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to see sort of the trajectory of, of these acquisitions and how they've happened. Um, you know, also, oh boy, a lot of the companies that they've acquired, the CEOs are still there. They're still running those companies. Um, you know, you talk about during that, that process of, of meeting with them, you know, there's a lot of meetings, especially when you start getting into due diligence of sort of, you know, what's the future look like? What, you know, here's our trajectory. Here's what we want to do and trying to engage and feel with them sort of um, what that's going to look like. But, you know, past performance is probably the best predictor of, of what the future is going to look like for you. And every company has a very different approach to acquisitions. How did Asa Abloy deal with the working capital situation? Because you, the whole reason you went to raise money in the first place is you needed to fulfill these massive orders yeah. and you, you didn't have the kind of uh, capital to to float those. Did, did that come up in your conversation? Like how they were going to fund those or what commitments they were going to make around funding them? Not specifically, but, but you do come back to an important point, right? Um, you know, Asa Abloy is a $9 billion company. At the time we were a $37 million company, right? In revenue. Um, and so in the grand scheme of things, we're not a massive piece of Asa Abloy's business. Um, some of the other acquirers, I mean, we were almost, you know, we would have been some of the largest acquisitions that they've ever made. Hmm. And so um, having that level of pressure on you and knowing that they're pretty much putting everything into this acquisition, that's, that's pretty scary, you know? Hmm. So that one was, uh, you know, with, with a couple of the acquirers that we were looking at, it was like, okay, if, if, if this acquisition happens versus the Asa Abloy, you can imagine they're very different. So also always got access to the capital. I mean, that's not a problem. Um, you know, as soon as they acquired us, we sort of had a line of, of credit that we're able to tap um, and use that. So now we don't worry about capital anymore. But with some right. of the other acquirers, it would have been a lot, you know, it's like every penny that you were asking them from was coming from a line of credit or something that they were going, you know, a hundred back to a bank. Yeah. 110% in on this acquisition. If this didn't work, their company was dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's huge. Um, in the case of Asabla, and again, I don't mean to drill in on this point, but I, but I, but I think it's fascinating what triggered the need to raise capital. So, as part of the negotiation, did did you get them to commit that they would allow you to access essentially the funds to fulfill the big retail order? Or, or did you just assume that because they were so big that that wouldn't be a problem? Yeah, I don't remember that specifically coming up as part of the acquisition conversation. Um, I guess we just assumed that they weren't going to want to starve us, right? And make us go under. So it's like you make this acquisition, you're going to make sure that there's funds to support it. So um, but yeah, that, that is an interesting one. And, you know, in hindsight, it might've been helpful. I think it's a very good point around like, 
okay, you're going to require us for X. How much money are you going to set aside for us to go continue to invest and try to grow this business? Um, you know, we were, we're a profitable business and we remain profitable. And I think to Asa Aboy, that's very important. They kind of only acquire profitable businesses and uh, they have a very, you know, they acquire profitable businesses with a strong management team in place. Those are really kind of the, and, and one that's in a, at least somewhat of a related or adjacent industry that they think they can sort of add a tailwind to. And then they give those companies the, the resources that they need to succeed. And so See, that's what we've seen. Excellent. So you had five strategics at the table and I'm assuming you had other uh, investors that were, that PwC, uh, you had conversations with that were willing to invest as opposed to acquire. Yeah, you know, the VC path didn't go as well as we had great meetings, really meaningful meetings. Um, you know, we're a hardware company. VCs are very much in the software companies, you know, finding the right fit. What's interesting is when you come into a venture capitalist through a banker, they don't particularly like that. Um, they know the banker is getting a piece of the money that's going to be raised. Um, they know that they're being shopped. And that, you know, you're going to be competing with other ones that they're going to try to bump up the price that you're going to pay for it. Um, they kind of play on that naivety that, that a lot of investors, that a lot of entrepreneurs have. Right. So, oh, wow. You know, some big VCs willing to talk to me. That's cool. Um, but when you're doing it with a private equity or with a, with a um, uh, bankers, you know, you've got five VCs at the table. And um, yeah, so the VCs kind of, you know, we pretty quickly, once we saw where it was going, we started getting offers from strategics. We kind of cut off the conversations with VCs and knew that we were going to go this path where we we're going to sell the company. And I, I guess I asked because, uh, you know, under the invest kind of door, uh, you, you would have taken money and been, you know, continued on as CEO and major shareholder. Um, under the acquire bucket, yeah. you 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 sold the company in essence, um, and, but now remaining on as CEO. Um, I mean, you're an entrepreneurial guy. I I, I just I I guess what what I'm asking is is what a, I guess what I want to know is what it's like for an entrepreneur who is so wired to be entrepreneurial. I mean, you're starting lockers when nobody has lockers. You're building a software company over here. This is your third business. You're pivoting. It's growing. To go from that to being a division in a $9 billion company, yeah, like, yeah. Is it, does it, how have you kind of come to grips with that as, as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a fantastic question. I think, um, you know, that, that what happens when you start getting deals on the table to sell your company, when you never even thought you were going to sell your company and you were so all into like, I've got another five years in this thing. And now I'm going to have VC money behind me. I have to bust my ass. It's going to be crazy to like, wow, you've got an offer on, on the table. That's going to change your life. You're never going to have to work again. It's going to be everything you could ever imagine of. I mean, it is just, it is a, it messes with your mind. I don't know what kind of profanity we can use here, but it is crazy. Right. And so, um, and then you go through this process where you're like, I don't know if this deal is going to close. Hopefully we get across the table. And so you're going through this and, and you're, you can't sleep at night. And it's just crazy. And you're thinking about the stuff you're going to buy with your money. And then you're like, there's not that much you can actually even buy with your money. And what's it going to do for your family and your kids? And what are your kids going to grow up? Like? I mean, it's just like a whole new world of stuff that you never even thought of. 
then the deal closes and you've got this money. You don't know what to do with this money. It's like, do I just let it sit in a bank account? Wait, this is actually work to like manage this money. And then, you know, why am I working still? Do I need to work? What's the purpose behind my work? And, you know, it's a solid six to nine months of sort of finding your way, and figuring out what you want to do and where is this journey going to take you? Um, you know, I felt tremendous responsibility to my team. I felt tremendous responsibility and still feel tremendous responsibility to Asa Alboy who acquired me and, and bet on us. Right. And so, um, and like I said, I wasn't trying to sell the company and get out of it. Um, so what I've realized is, you know, this now gives me the, op- it, it, it takes the risk and the fear. And to me as an entrepreneur, fear was what guided my decisions every single day. And you don't realize how much fear is sits on your shoulders and, and how much that guides your decision-making. And, and it's good. I mean, it makes you do things that um, most safer, sane people might not do. It makes you go after, you know, and start businesses. And I still love creating that. I mean, we have a whole innovation team here that works on product innovation today. We actually just launched a, for an, pilot for a whole new business model in essence that I'm super excited about. And so what's nice is, um, you know, I don't really need to make my, for me, starting a new company is not around striking it rich and, and making money. It's around my passion for changing the way the world does things, which I really enjoy doing and challenging current business models and stuff like that. So this actually becomes that, that place, that incubator where I can kind of do that stuff and you take money off the table and you don't need money anymore. And it's like, well, maybe this is where I do finish my career and maybe, you know, I don't have to work 80 hours a week and five days a week. I can kind of, or five, yeah, five days a week. Um, you know, I can kind of pare that down a little bit, put in place a management team and do what I like to do and, you know, hopefully have some upside in that success. But to me, I, I've kind of realized that um, now it's more uh, about, the success of the people that work for me. And that's become really motivating and enjoyable is how do I help them uh, build strong careers and, and the tool sets they need. And whether that be in Osaboy or outside of Osaboy, I'm in a great position now to be able to help the people that help me get to where I am. So it's a really fun and crazy. It's just this crazy journey you go on that you would <laughs> never even understand. Um, or it's, I never even thought about it till it sort of happened to me. And I was like, wow, I probably should have thought about this at a time. What advice would you give a fellow entrepreneur about to embark on that journey? Of selling the company or raising the company or raising money and such? No, the, the check is about to clear tonight. More oh. money than they've ever imagined is going to be deposited into their bank account. Uh, and they're going to about to embark on that nine month journey of self-exploration. What advice would you give that? fellow entrepreneur? So one of the most helpful things for me is a group I'm in called EO Entrepreneurs Organization. It's the largest entrepreneur group in the, in the world. Um, been pivotal in my career. But what's amazing about EO is there's plenty of guys in this chapter alone, not alone, not outside, you know, outside of the, out of my Sacramento chapter is plenty, but even in Sacramento, we probably have five or six guys that have been through exits. Um, some of these, I mean, we got one guy who's sold two companies for a, $500 million. Right. And so, um, you know, you're able to find people that have gone through this and to be able to talk to them, to see their stories, what the decisions that they've made are. Some people say, yeah, it's great. I play golf the other day. 
all day. Some guys say, I can't stop working. I'm going to work every day. Uh, you're never going to, you know, you're going to want to start another business tomorrow. So being able to see those journeys, to be able to hear their stories, to be able to talk to them uh, is incredibly helpful. Um, you know, patience too, especially like, you know, your phone starts ringing left and right from all these um, money managers. <laughs> those, those are fun. Hey, Ark, yeah. <laughs> I wasted a bunch of my time with me and my wife talking to all of them going, oh, you know, like, how are you going to manage our money? All these guys do is trade stock and charge you for it. So we didn't really go down that path. We kind of had some, some patience around that, which was great. So, you know, it's like take the money, stash it away. Don't think about it. Buy some of the nice stuff that you want. You know, make sure your family's happy. Set up a good trust and, and good protection, asset protection. Um, and then, you know, for me, it's, it's business as usual. In fact, I probably work harder now than I was working before. <laughs> Mainly because like I've got a boss in a company and I've got all these meetings I have to go to and attend that I never had to before, which is interesting. I wasn't expecting that, uh, but it's fun too. It's great to, you know, I wasn't, I didn't become an entrepreneur because I had to get out of the corporate world. I started my career at General Electric and enjoyed it, you know, enjoyed the people there, the learnings there. I've worked for small companies and startups and uh, I don't really have any problem working for someone else. Uh, it's nice to have other smart people to, to bounce ideas across. I mean, yesterday we were looking to do an acquisition and I had people in here who've done three or four acquisitions. So you know, I'm able to bring those folks in and they share a perspective with me that I would never have because they've seen stuff that I've never had. So to me, it's just kind of the next step in the journey and it's been, been a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing the story. One last question. Did you buy yourself a trophy? Was there a, a something you bought that, that for you signifies the sale? Um, it, it's funny. So, um, so we end up, there's a piece of property that we always wanted, my wife and I. And uh, so we ended up buying that property and uh, I brought one of my coworkers out to it. He lived in uh, like Atlanta and he was out here for a week. And uh, I was like, Oh, you know, stay with us for a weekend so he came out and he's like you know i'm driving around my four-wheeler around our 20 acres and he goes has it sunk in? has it sunk in yet and i'm like yeah this is when it sinks in you know when you when you have kind of everything that you ever wanted um and uh and it's great i mean our life is is fantastic but uh yeah i'd say kind of the, the property is probably the trophy that that we bought Love it. Love it. I think that's important to do to, to commemorate and celebrate it. Uh, it's not the material app thing, but it's the, it's the ability to kind of remember the achievement, which is, uh, which is huge in your case. I'm so glad for you to spend the time that you have with us today. Um, I know people are going to want to reach out, um, uh, congratulate you and probably pick your brain. Do you accept like LinkedIn connections or, you know, how, how do you feel about people sort of reaching out? Um, yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is fine. A lot of times I won't accept the connection unless it's somebody I know. Okay. You can still put a message in there. And if it's interesting, I'll definitely like you and respond to it. Um, yeah, that's probably actually the best way to get in touch with me is just a LinkedIn message. Okay. And, and the, the website is luxor1.com? Yeah, it's luxor, L-U-X-E-R-O-N-E.com. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just Arik Levy, A-R-I-K Levy, L-E-V-Y. Well, you've been generous with your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Ark. Absolutely. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. 
John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.